Warning, the following podcast, which contains strong language and mature content, is unsuitable for children or for the faint of heart. The subject matter discussed will be frightening and graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. Along with the spooked girls Bring on the slaughter We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey spooksters and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara and as always I'm here with my girlfriend Jessica. Hello! Hello. And today, as you can see, we are continuing on our series on the murders of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman. We're at part. I don't even know what number this is. Five, six, six, maybe. I'm not sure. Um, (laughs) So much OJ has been consuming our life. Mm -hmm. But before we get into all of the stuff Jess has for us today, if you are new here, hello, welcome. Thank you for checking out the show. Returning Spooksters, welcome back. If you would like to hang out with us on social media, we are on Facebook, Instagram. Our Twitter is still there, but I don't know. I saw some article saying like, you got to pay now or something. But if you want to find us there, Gross. I, I have no idea. We are at Three Spooked Girls or we have our Facebook group, which is Three Spooked Girls official. We do book club gift exchanges right now. Secret Satan is fully underway. Jessica got everybody paired up, all sent out. So hopefully we're seeing some cool stuff. But yeah, the most stressful weekend <laughs> of my life. There's a reason we only do like one or two exchanges a year. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. I was like hyperventilating. Like I kept oh. telling Tara, I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh God, I can't, I can't. And she's like, you got this. I was like, I don't. But I made it through. Me, yes. me and the cats. So yes. So go to our Facebook group. Um, We also have the link tree in the show notes that has everything pertaining to us. Jess and I are also on Instagram and threads. You can check out our stuff in the link tree as well. And if you would like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com backslash three spooked girls. For as little as a dollar, you get one bonus episode a month. Five and up, you get ad free episodes. And it's usually a day early. So that's pretty cool. I don't know. But you can check out everything over there. Oh, and also we are some of our other tiers too. uh, like our highest tier, we gave free access to those patrons just as an extra little thank you. Um, So yeah, so there's all kinds of stuff that just kind of like pops in for you guys over there on Patreon. It's true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But with that, I'm going to go ahead and hand it over to Jessica and we're just going to get going back, back to this <laughs> trial, guys. <laughs> I just want to say, guys, I have done more research on OJ Simpson than I have done on any other human being in my entire fucking life. Wow. And 
I hope you're here for it. Yeah. If you are like me and you're wanting to consume more about this case, because this case is really fucking fascinating from a, like perspective of watching blunders happen in a courtroom Mm -hmm. definitely check out the book the run of his life the people versus oj simpson by jeffrey tubin it's where i got a lot of my stuff from and i'm actually going to be referencing several times as tara can see Mm -hmm. all the notes flags yes all the flags all the stickies where i'm like i'm just not going to copy them into my notes i'm just going to read from the book there you go. It's like book club. Um, I love this. It is. It's really well written. It's Jeffrey uh, Tubin is a attorney turned journalist. Mm-hmm. So it's a really great perspective because he does have that like cultural authority over this particular like subject matter. Mm-hmm. And he was there for a lot of it. Right. So dun, 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 let's get <laughs> right on in. So Tara handled the prosecution. And I'm handling the defense. I'm going to go back and forth some on some things because, like, there's some things that made more sense to do within the defense team than it did with the prosecution. Mm-hmm. So at this point, we're going to talk about assembling the dream team. And <sighs> I am not talking about the basketball team in the 90s oh. with Michael Jordan and Damn all those it. fun people. I know. Just heartbreaking. This is the O.J. Simpson dream team. Gotcha. So if you remember... Right after he gets the phone call, he calls a lawyer and he calls uh, Skip Taft, which is his like attorney. And he's like, okay, you need a criminal attorney, like a criminal attorney, a criminal defense attorney. So he calls Howard Weitzman. Howard Weitzman is lets him go and get interviewed by the police without him there and just requests tapes, which is the dumbest shit I've ever heard from a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Bobby Kardashian, Bobby and Skip are like, you have to get a new attorney. You have to get an actual good criminal attorney. You need someone who can handle this case because it's going to be fucking huge. And so at the time in LA, the biggest celebrity attorney or fix-it man was a man by the name of Robert Shapiro, (gasps) played by John Travolta. (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting. (laughs) If you're wondering. Ironically, in my life, I know several several Robert Shapiros, none of which are this man. No. Mm-mm. Who I believe died in 2020. But yeah. mm. I'm going to read you the introduction from his wiki page because when I read it, I was like, okay, the world needs to know oh, this. Oh, God. Okay. Robert Leslie Shapiro was born September 2nd, 1942, and is an American attorney and entrepreneur. He is best known for being a short-term defense lawyer of Eric Menendez in 1990 and the member of the dream team of O.J. Simpson's attorneys that successfully defended him from charges of the murder of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and Ron Goldman in 1994. He later turned to civil work and co-founded, are you ready for this, Tara? Oh my God, yeah. Shoe Dazzle. Shut the fuck up. Yeah, Shoe Dazzle, LegalZoom, and RightCounsel.com, appearing on their television commercials. <gasps> Whoa, <laughs> what the so fuck? So I own several shoes from <laughs> Shoe Dazzle. Yeah, I used to, yeah. Oh my God. I have paid this man money, apparently. Shame, shame. Mm-hmm. Robert or Bob Shapiro attended UCLA for his undergrad and would and get a BS in finance. And he would attend Loyola Law School and graduate with his JD in 1968. In the case of Lyle and Eric Menendez, who murdered their parents in 1989, we know this because like, um, mm-hmm. you know, we've done it before. Yeah. Basically, if you remember, Eric had gone back into his tennis career he had gone to israel for some time and when they were like 
arraigning them. Mm-hmm. He was there and I wouldn't come back. I'd be like, fuck you guys. <laughs> but basically, Robert Shapiro was the one who brokered the deal to get him to come back for his arraignment. Mm. Bob was also known as the plea bargain attorney. So if you needed, like if you did it, and you needed someone just to get you the fuck out of it with like a lesser time, Bob Shapiro was the man to call. Yep. He was not well versed as a trial lawyer, but that meant he needed to reach out to another person. And that was going to be F. Lee Bailey. The two had been friends for for like a decade plus. Bob had represented Lee, which is his preferred name, when he'd gotten into trouble with some D- a DUI in February of 1982 in San Francisco. Bob Shapiro was his attorney. So they obviously trust each other because I think it's a big deal if you're a lawyer to trust another lawyer. Oh, for sure. For sure. For most of the 1970s and the 1980s, F. Lee Bailey or Lee was known as the best defense attorney in the nation. He had a laundry list of clients. Are you ready for these? Oh, boy. Mm -hmm. Sam Shepard, who would later uh, inspire the TV show The Fugitive. He was convicted of killing his wife and Bailey took the case all the way to the Supreme Court and basically got a retrial and then won. Oh. He also represented and won with the Boston Strangler case, Adam DeSalvo. He basically got him off on all of the murders, (gasps) just got him off. He just had to like serve time on the assault charges. Oh my God. What? Right? One of his most famous clients was one Miss Patty Hearst. If you don't know who Patty Hearst is, she's the newspaper heiress who basically committed armed bank robberies with the Sabanese Liberation Army, the SLA. And this would be the one that he loses. Just like, still, yeah. it's a pretty big deal. Oh, just fun facts for you on this. Just like he lost it in his closing statement. He seemed disjointed is what they said, quote unquote. Basically, people thought he had been drinking. Oh. According to the book uh, that I read, uh, Jeff by Jeff Tubin or whatever his name is, Ethley Bailey was a... He was a bit of an alcoholic. It was his like, oh shit, it was his theme. He ended up spilling gotcha. water on his pants during his closing statement. But don't worry about Patty because she only served 22 months of her 12 year sentence. And uh, she was commuted in 1977 by President Jimmy Carter. And then she was pardoned later in 2001 by one Mr. Bill Clinton. Also, Lee at the time, one of the reasons is they brought Lee in is if you watch the docuseries or the the drama series, Simpson takes a polygraph test that uh, Shapiro and Kardashian have him take and he fails it. They didn't really understand it. And when Lee graduated from college, he basically just like went in and learned as much about polygraph tests as he could. And he kind of became like the standard of like people you would have in your life. Nope, that's wrong. I'm sorry. That's Alan Dershowitz. My bad. But Lee was like understood this. I apologize. That was later in my notes. He was an expert, though, in polygraph tests. Also, really fun thing is that Lee and Shapiro would have some bitch fights during this. Oh. So basically, (laughs) when your first call is a is like, I would think like if I'm a defense attorney and my first call is my most important call, right? Like he calls Lee like right away. Well, come to find out when Shapiro signed a contract with Simpson, he basically said that Simpson wouldn't have to pay Bailey, that if any charges were occurred, it would be Shapiro's like responsibility. But Shapiro was like in this whole thing and he's just a little bitch. You'll find out a lot in this era of life. <laughs> he basically is like on a vacation and he calls Lee and they're talking and Bob tells Lee, oh, you're doing this for free. You're a volunteer. And do not fuck with F. 
Lee Bailey. That man will fuck you the fuck over. And he did. He literally was the person who went into like, he was on Larry King and he was like, you know, people say this about Robert Shapiro. If you watch the drama series, he's like, then why the fuck are you saying it? Like, (laughs) it's that. (laughs) Yeah. He was just very good at his way of like stirring up discord. Mm -hmm. Another member of the team, which I'm only noting because of the proximity to myself, is Robert Blazley. Blazer, sorry. Um, Blazer was a student of Alan Dershowitz, who we'll talk about in a minute. And he just like was like a helper. But fun fact, he practices in the greater Sacramento area. Oh, wow. He practices in Folsom, California, (laughs) which is like 20 minutes from my house. Oh, shit. The next is going to be Sean Chapman Holly. According to her Wikipedia page, Holly graduated from the University of Los Angeles with a BA in English in 1984 and went on to the Southwest University Law School and got her law degree in 1988. She would become a public defender where she would work with Johnny Cochran. And then when he opened his The Cochran Firm, she would go with him over there and she would be part of the dream team. She would later go on to open or like be a part of her own law firm. And I was texting Tara about this. She has had in her time, her lifetime, some big ass. Yeah. So oh here is a list according to her Wikipedia according to the Wikipedia page of her clients. She has had one Miss Kim Kardashian, Tupac Shakur, Snoop Dogg, Paris Hilton, Nicole Richie, Lindsay Lohan, and one Mr. Very gross, very recent, Danny Masterson. I literally was like texting Tara. I was like, one of his lawyers represented Danny Masterson. And Tara was just like, this is so gross. <laughs> so gross. It's so incestuous. Yeah. The next person is Alan Dershowitz. Alan is a former law professor. He taught U.S. constitutional law and American criminal law at Harvard. It was said in the book and on the show that basically he would drop that he taught at Harvard as much as possible. He was a name dropper. Um, he joined them in 1964. As an associate professor, he had barely graduated. He was like 28. Oh, wow. When he became a full like professor and because he like joined as like an assistant professor in 1980 or 1964. But by 1967, he had become a full one, which he was 28 years old. Damn. He was the youngest professor in the history of the law school. I believe it. He's very smart. Very, very smart. After the O.J. Simpson trial, Alan would go on to have even bigger clients who are just as equally pieces of shit. Freya came to say hi. Freya, let's tell them. (laughs) Jeffrey Epstein was his client in 2008. Bro. I was dying when she was telling me this. (laughs) I was like, oh, my God. He, uh, yeah, he was a member of the legal team when they first brought charges against him. And it was the investigation where he was accused of repeatedly soliciting sex from minors. He also, I'm going to mispronounce his last name, is Julian Estrange, who is the WikiLeaks guy. Was also one of oh. his. I'm not really, like, I don't really give a shit about the WikiLeaks guy. I don't know what that means. Oh, he was the dude. Okay, so the WikiLeaks guy basically, like, leaked a bunch of, like, classified documents on a website called WikiLeaks. Oh, okay. It was, like, a big deal gotcha. in, like, 2011. We were too preoccupied with, like, William and Kate getting married. <laughs> yeah, I was like, that, Yeah. <laughs> He has two more really interesting people that he represented. One, Mr. Harvey Weinstein. Jesus. All the bad assholes, like the dick faces of the world. He didn't, he didn't win this case. A lot of these cases he didn't win, which I'm like, cool. 
And then his most recent big one in 2020 was he represented Donald J. Trump. Um, He represented him in his first impeachment. The next one is Barry Schick. Barry Schick is a law professor at Benjamin N. Cordozo School of Law in New York City, and he is a forensic expert. He is going to be the one on this team who's going to come in and basically like walk the defense and basically cross-examine all of the evidence that they end up Mm -hmm. doing. The next one is Peter Newfield. I think that's how we're saying his name. He basically was an assistant. He was an assistant and he was coming in to undermine the DNA evidence as well. So he worked with Schick on that. Uh, Carl E. Douglas worked, was one of Johnny Cochran's top lawyers. And so he came with him. I believe he is the one, if you watch the drama series, where he's like the one who puts in the wrong information. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to talk about the big one. Mm -hmm. One... Mr. Legendary Johnny Cochran himself. Johnny Cochran was originally from Shreveport, Louisiana, and his parents moved to California in 1949 in part of what is called the the Second Great Migration, and they settled in L.A. He got a bachelor's degree in economics from UCLA. Remember how Shapiro got like a, a bachelor's in finance? Mm-hmm. So that's very similar. He also went to Loyola Law School, but he graduated several years earlier in 1962. Whoa. So I think that's very interesting that they yeah. basically were like samesies. In 1963, uh, Johnny took a position as a deputy city attorney in the criminal division. And if you watch The Incredible or The Marvelous Miss Mavels on Amazon Prime, you might recognize the name. His first big case was one Mr. Lenny Bruce, who was a comedian who had gotten in trouble for saying some shit on stage. And that's who Johnny had to fight or had to like prosecute. Gotcha. So I was like, ooh, this is all in in (laughs) time. It is. He would only be with the the city attorney's office for very short. He would uh, open his own practice, which would be Cochran's, Atkins, and Evans. But that would only last a few years as well, because then he went back and joined the LA DA's office as the first district assist or first assistant DA. Um, he wanted to help the DA's office become known as the good guys. But Johnny doesn't sit still very long because five years later he left and he uh, opened Johnny. L. Cochran Jr. Law Firm or the John or the Cochran Law Firm. He was very outspoken against the LAPD, especially in 1992 with the Rodney King riots. And he was kind of the voice of the black community in the media. He was a commentator on many news organizations and he was very, very highly respected. Mm-hmm. I want that to be known as well. He may have been like kind of a showman. People described him as being able to speak like a preacher, but he he basically had a really get a gift in taking something really complicated like the law and making people understand. Mm-hmm. Not always for good, because he joined the OJ Simpson defense <laughs> yeah. team. Let's be yeah. honest here. But like, yeah, I know the whole time I was doing the research on the defense, I was like, fuck them. I hate them all. <laughs> They they helped a man go free. We're going to talk about jury selection because that was the one part we missed before. But yeah, the defense, Bob Shapiro and Johnny Cochran, knew that the attention that OJ was receiving was eventually going to wear off. And so they needed to pounce on this. And they pressed for a speedy trial. And I don't remember if we introduced him last time, but we're going to learn about Lance Ito, Judge Lance Ito. He is is a judge. So they told Judge Ito, we we want to go on with jury selection. And it started on September 20th, 1994. Tara, today is September 20th. (laughs) 
<laughs> when we're recording this. <laughs> when we're recording this, just 29 years later. Mm, yes. Before that, each side had to prepare for jury selection, and this was very important for the trial, and I think this is one way the prosecution lost this case. Mm-hmm. The defense hired a very well sought after jury consultant, Joanne uh, Demetrius, and she worked on the Rodney King cases. She's worked on some big ones and she knows how to, she understood the assignment of picking a downtown jury. She would come to every single day of jury selection and make notes and the defense team would listen to her. Mm-hmm. However, the DA's office, the prosecution, run by one Miss Marsha Clark, was not as fortunate because Marsha Clark's ego got in the fucking way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the DA's office wanted it to be in a downtown, so they 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 kept it there. And DA Gil Garcetti announced that this would be a non-death penalty case and would steer the prosecution in a good direction. Basically, if there was, if it was a death penalty case, you have to identify as a juror whether you would willing to be on there. You would be called a death qualified juror. So this actually would make it easier for the prosecution, but they didn't. They made it harder for themselves. So then Gil, having this friend by the name of Donald Vinson, he hires him because he In 1989, opened what's called Decision Quest. Basically, Donald was a professor of of obscure marketing, and he came up with this idea around jury selection. We see it as very common practice now, where people do a a lot of investigation into putting together the right jurors Mm -hmm. and the right demographics for cases. However... This wasn't that big of a thing. And so he started his company in 1989 with like him and a buddy and maybe a couple other people. But by 1994, he had over 200 employees. That's how good he was. Wow. Marsha Clark was having none of the shit. She, in her mind, had it one way. So when Donald was like, let's set up a a mock trial, Marsha was like, fuck this shit. No, thank you. I don't want to do this. And she was convinced because she had tried so many cases in front of black women that those were her people. Those are her words. That those are her demographic. That's her people. She spoke to them. Mm -hmm. In fact, she had a little fan club of black women who had been jurors who constantly wrote her over the years. And so in Marsha's mind, because this one small subset of black women found her smart and intelligent and doing good work, all Black women were going to. And she was also convinced that Black women especially would sympathize and understand Nicole's situation regarding the domestic violence. These were her statements. Like, this was her big crux of this. She could not have been more wrong. They didn't want to do it in LA because they wanted a different, like, pool of people. So they they basically were flying to Phoenix. However, as they're leaving LAX, fucking Marsha Clark forgot that she had a gun on her. So this whole big shit happens. Oh my God. Where like, she has to like get pulled over by TSA because she has a gun. And granted, this is 1994. So this isn't as crazy as like now if you had a gun, but like still it was a big fucking deal. And when this happened, the TSA agents tipped off. They tipped off reporters. All these reporters knew it. So Marsha Clark was like, fuck this shit. I don't want to do this anymore. We should just cancel. And Donald was like, well, you flew all the way out here. We should do something. She's like, well, I don't want to do the mock trial because she didn't want to do the mock trial anyway. And this was her way out. So he's like, okay, we have these people. We're just, let's just ask them questions. So basically they asked each them to rate each person on a scale of one to 10 people involved in the, in the case. When it came to Nicole Brown Simpson, they, she received scores of seven, five, and three. She's the fucking victim. Yeah. When it came to OJ Simpson, he received nines and tens. 
When they were asked to give their impression of the lawyers, Robert Shapiro, who, you know, is the head counsel for the defense at this point in time, was called smart and clever and charming. And Marsha Clark was not given such nice descriptions. In fact, she was considered, this is the words they used for her. It was shifty, strident, bitch. In fact, they use bitch a lot. And Marsha is literally, like, sitting in another room watching this on, like, a CCTV situation. Yeah. Literally, like, black women are like, no. They're like, she's a no for us. Mm -hmm. And Marsha's like, "Mm mm-mm, I know, I know exactly what I'm talking about. Girl, you did not. (laughs) And according to a, I'm going to read this excerpt from the run of his life. Uh, It's on page 193. According to the telephone poll, uh, black men were three times more likely than black women to uh, believe that Simpson was guilty. Moreover, black women felt overwhelmingly that even if Simpson had engaged in a pattern of domestic domestic violence against his ex-wife, that didn't make him more likely to have killed her. According to the telephone poll, a full 40% of black women felt that the use of physical force was appropriate in a marriage. And black women especially could not stand Marsha Clark. No, it says abide, but I wanted to say stand. So Donald gives all this information to the DA's office, to Marsha Clark, and she's just like, fuck now. <laughs> Another one of my favorite things is they called her a castrating bitch because they saw a symbol, OJ Simpson is a symbol of black virility in a predominantly white world. You guys should see Tara's face right now. <laughs> It's just like, oh, no. Yeah. (laughs) So Judge Ito wanted a really large jury poll. In fact, he had 900 jurors, potential jurors, come in throughout this process. And this was a breakdown of that jury. The initial, this is from the book. The initial group uh, provided a fair approximation of the overall jury pool in the down lo- downtown Los Angeles area. They were roughly equal in men and women, 28.1% African-American, 37.9% Caucasian, with the remainder divided up between Latinos, Asians, and others. Overall, the downtown jury pool is about 31% African-American and 30% Caucasian. So those were pretty even. Because this was going to be a sequestered jury, and the LA County only pays you $5 a day for your jury service. So think about that. Like, there was like, yeah, literally nine months of being paid $5 a day. Um, This was going to be a big deal. They were literally going to live in a hotel. They did not have TVs in their room. They couldn't go to the pool. All of their like reading materials had to be pre-screened. All of their movies and stuff had to be pre-screened. Nothing could have any mention of OJ in it. People would listen in on their phone calls to their family so that their families couldn't give them information. The only time Mm -hmm. that information could slip through, which was a privacy issue, was during conjugal visits. Mm. Because jurors got conjugal visits. (laughs) I mean... People have needs. (laughs) People have needs. Oh, and the other thing is at nine o'clock at night that the deputies would come around and collect all their cards, their room keys. Oh. Because they didn't want jurors to leave their room and Mm. go to other people's rooms to hook up. On day one of jury selection, 219 jurors reported. Of that, Judge Ito excused 90. He was like, if you want the fuck out, get the fuck out. Interestingly enough... When they called the first juror number, it was number 32, which was O.J. Simpson's number, his career number. So oh, wow. Judge Ito was like, oh, my God, this is crazy. 
Um, nine days after they began, they had whittled it down from nine hundred, like over nine hundred, to three hundred and four willing jurors who understood what was going to be asked of them. Then the jurors were put through a very intense questionnaire. Now, typically, questionnaires aren't that long. And they really are about conflict of interest. But Ito was like, you know what? I'm gonna let the defense attorneys just have their way with this shit. And he did. So we have some questions like, where were you born? Where was your spouse born? We also have, have you ever had a personal interaction with a celebrity such as Willie or writing a celebrity a letter, receiving a letter or autograph from a celebrity or getting an autograph from a celebrity? Yes, no. If yes, explain. That was one of the questions. Some of these were like essay questions. They'd like provide three lines and expect you to. Do you have <laughs> oh any affiliation God. with professional sports? Mm. How do you feel about interracial marriage? Do you have a religious affiliation or preference? Yes, no. If yes, please, please describe. How mm. important would you say religion is in your life? There's all of these types of questions. Do you have, and it says, please check security bars, arms, guard dog, weapons for protection. How many hours a week do you watch sporting activities? Are you a fan of USC Trojan football? Uh, what is your favorite sports team? Do you belong to like like AA, Sierra Club, the NRA? I mean, this one makes sense. Have you ever seen a crime being committed? They did ask... Uh, have you ever been a, like domestic in a domestic violence case? Those kind of questions make sense. They would, <laughs> they would ask like personality type questions. Like, do you seek out positions of leadership? Always, often, seldom, never. Please name three public figures you admire most. So yeah, and this would be the breakdown of the jurors. Of the twenty four jurors, there were fifteen African American, six white, three Hispanics. In a county that had just 11% Black. Over the months to come, 10 jurors would be replaced by alternates. Based on their answers for their of their questionnaire, 12 of the jurors who ultimately decided the O.J. Simpson case had the following characteristics. All 12 were Democratic, were Democrats. Two were college graduates. Not one juror read the newspaper regularly. Nine lived in rented homes. Three owned homes. Two had supervisory or management responsibilities at work. Ten did not. Eight regularly watched television, tabloid news shows like hard copy. Five said that they or a family member had personally endured a negative experience with law enforcement. Five thought it was acceptable to use force on a family member. Nine... Three quarters of the jury thought O.J. Simpson was less likely to murder his wife because he had excelled at football. The final group included one African-American man, one Hispanic man, two white women, and eight African-American women. On the whole, Marsha Clark was pleased, especially the alternates. She and Bill Hodgman didn't even exercise all 20 of their preliminary challenges. Like, the fuck? Right? She did not listen. She did not Mm-mm. listen well. Mm-mm. Donald... F- Vincent was like, this is what you need. And she was like, I'm going to do my own thing. I know more than you. Right. And look where that got her. She was very wrong. This case is kind of a big case when we talk about the defense strategy. It's really hard to talk about this case without talking about race. It just is. And it's something that Tara and I have thought about over the years when it's come to this case. And probably has why we've waited some time to do it. But the race card is a term used very often in this case. 
Bob Shapiro came out early, basically spinning that OJ didn't kill Nicole and Ron, but the LAPD were having a cover up and they were using OJ Simpson as an scapegoat goat mm. just because he was black, which if that's if that was true, that's a horrific thing. Yeah, it's terrifying because there are places in this country that that happens. Yep, this is not one of those cases, right? I mean, O.J. Simpson was literally the most celebrity endorser of the LAPD. They could come to his house and host pool parties. Every year at Christmas time, O.J. Simpson went to their holiday parties and they just basically be like, O.J., want to come? And he's like, I'm right here. Mm -hmm. He's the most LAPD celebrity that there ever was up until the time of June 12, 1994. So why would the LAPD frame their biggest celebrity ally? And why the fuck... Did Marsha Clark not ask that question? Right. Because she not good at her job. <laughs> okay. So I found this, I found this like curriculum that this man by the name of Peter Herndon wrote. And it is from the Yale New Haven Teachers Institute. And it's literally a synopsis written for this class. And the class is called Playing the Race Card, Two Famous Trials. So there's like this OJ case and there's another one. But this is the excerpt taken from that curriculum. It says, racial undertones were established right from the beginning of this case. A black man was accused of killing his white ex-wife and her white male friend. The lead detective in the case, Mark Furman, was clearly a bigot and hated persons of African-American descent. Robert Shapiro, one of Simpson's attorneys, said that Simpson's legal team chose to play the race card, adding that we dealt it from the bottom of the deck. This is not a very pretty statement, but an effective one. One of all the hundreds of witnesses that paraded the stand ill the Simpson case, Mark Furman and his use of the N-word was the prosecution's gift to the defense that may have turned the tide decisively in the Simpsons in Simpson's favor. Despite the mountain of evidence prepared by the prosecution that included DNA evidence, the 911 audio tapes from Nicole and the a bloody glove, a jury quietly concluded that the prosecution had not proven beyond a reasonable doubt that O.J. Simpson was guilty of these horrific crimes. One masterful stroke employed by the defense to a- agree that O.J. Simpson, try on is in quotes, the glove for the jury and the whole world to see what better way to reinforce their twin theory of sloppy police work and the police conspiracy to finger Simpson. Johnny Cochran's rhyming capulet after O.J. struggled to put on the glove rang true to the jury. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. And acquit they did. Much to the anger of some and the cheers of others. Before we went on any further, I just thought like finding an academic source that talked about the race card because I'm sensitive to the fact that as a white woman, I don't have the voice to talk about it in a way that's like my own story. Mm -hmm. I do know that being raised with a black brother and watching his life and always worrying about him, I understand that there are places in this world that he's not safe. Yeah. But OJ Simpson in Brentwood, California was safe. And when we take away the true travesty of, like, what happened to Rodney King and basically, like, make O.J. Simpson the biggest martyr there is, in my opinion, it's just, it took away what actually happened to someone. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so O.J. Simpson, his attorneys, uh, there was some inner fighting, basically, Robert Shapiro was the lead defense attorney on this case because he was hired first. And then when Cochran was brought in, 
it just quickly became evident to everyone else that Robert Shapiro just was not cut out for this position. And I was like, I don't know why Robert Shapiro is like throwing a big fit. But come to find out the reason why he didn't want to step down as lead or lead defense attorney is if he had stayed on as the lead defense attorney, OJ Simpson would have had to pay him $1.2 million. Whoa. However, if he became like second chair, he would only get $700,000. That's what $5 the hundred thousand dollars that he was like i want that so and when the whole sniping began because basically fc f lee bailey went on larry king and was like he's not good at his job and then he just kept having blunders basically robert shapiro from like the fucking get literally like he's been hired to be oj simpson's lawyer the saturday after or like the not maybe not that saturday but the saturday after he literally holds court with like all of these like super fancy white attorneys he basically asks them all who thinks he did it everyone just kind of chuckles about it but he basically like picks their brain of what they need he had no idea and throughout the whole trial shapiro tries to get simpson to cop a plea bargain he even comes up with this like he like spins what the def- or what the prosecution is saying that basically like oj went over there and found him and nicole together and he was enraged and he killed him and we could get manslaughter and literally he suggests this and oj just kind of is like okay so johnny what do you have <laughs> like literally just like ignores him and so shapiro and cochran fight and this basically comes down right down to opening statements Mm -hmm. shapiro is like i'm the fucking lead lead defense attorney i need to give this and simpson basically was like no we're gonna let johnny do it gotcha Mm -hmm. i mean it's a given (laughs) i'm gonna tell you the truth guys i'm gonna show tara this document right now i want your this is this is what i was like having problems it is (laughs) The the transcript from the day in which they give their opening statements is 83 pages long. Yeah. And mainly it's because throughout his opening statement, Johnny Cochran actually starts to like argue instead of just lay out the case. Like he's like arguing mm. the case in his opening statement. So Bill Hodgman is, and Marsha Clark are like, excuse me. Um, no, that's not, this is not time right now, guys. But some highlights of things that he says, um, one of the things he says is this case is about a rush to judgment, an obvious win at any cost is what he told the jury. He lays out the timeline and their perception, their perspective. He also like kind of dropped like some other weird shit in there as well. Like, you remember how like when we did the Casey Anthony case? What's his name? Jose Barra was like, Baez. Mm-hmm. yeah, where he was like, oh, there's a sexual assault happened and never talks about it again. Johnny Cochran does the same mm-hmm. thing. Um, I'm not going to read oh. the whole thing to you guys. I'm not even going to read most of no. it to you. Just know that it's basically saying that there's like he at one point he drops his whole notion that this other woman saw like four Hispanic men like at her condo and they were leaving about 1045 and that this woman sees them. It's this whole big thing. Like it's a lot. So before we get into the defense and denying the evidence, uh, we should talk about the judge. So basically way back when uh, in June, in July, when 
OJ Simpson is arraigned. He pleads, he just says that absolutely 100% not guilty. And he says this to a judge by the name of uh, Cecil Mills. And Judge Mills was like, okay, we're going to assign this case to the Superior Court and we're going to to one Mr. Judge Lance Ito. Lance Ito is, was used to high pressure situations. In fact, his parents met in an internment camp in World War II. Oh. Like, you know, when the US like rounded a people up. Asian heritage is up and put them in camps. That's where they met. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He did his undergraduate at UCLA, which seems to be a theme <laughs> in this case. And uh, he got his degree from uh, UC Berkeley. He seemed to really like the UC system. And he would graduate in 1975. He would join the, the LA's district attorney office in 1977. In 1981, he would marry Margaret York. And she was the first woman to obtain the rank of of deputy chief of the LAPD and was the department's highest ranking officer when she retired in 2002. He was appointed to the state Supreme Court in 1989. And in 1992, he handled the indictment against Lyle and Eric Menendez, you know, the people who keep popping up in this case. Mm -hmm. He was a huge celebrity follower. He was like enamored with them. In fact, at one point in time, he told a journalist that he was really excited because Arsenio Hall had sent him an autograph. Mm. So because he was married to a prominent member of the LAPD, Mills offered to offer the defense a chance to argue to get Ito excused, but they were like, whatever. They knew that he was into this like celebrity gravitas situation. So they were like, no, we want him. And interestingly enough, when Ito was in the DA's office, one Mr. Johnny Cochran was his boss. What? (laughs) Like I didn't know, but. (laughs) So we know all of the players at this point. Yes. So the defense team had to establish a reasonable doubt so that they could get an acquittal. They're basically, to to summarize really short into three words, it is compromised, contaminated, and corrupted. They use this over and over again in the opening statement. If you want to read it, it's online. I'm not going to read it to you like I mentioned earlier because it's literally, it took them hours. They argued that the DNA evidence that was found at Simpsons was compromised and was mishandled by a criminologist by the name of Dennis Fung. Fung is weird. He literally was like on the stand for like nine days. And when he left, he like shook all of the attorney's hands, including... OJ Simpson's hand, like that the fucker wasn't on trial for murder and he wasn't just the guy up there getting grilled about his lobby work. It was it was crazy. Like there was even this like one point where like they were like Sheck, who was the guy who like argued all of the evidence, the DNA evidence and stuff. <laughs> there is this like moment where there's like there's a smudge on the back gate that they basically took a sample from like several days later, like a long time later, actually. And it was a big deal because they're saying that that smudge wasn't there, that it was planted. And they were trying to say, and I'm going to find this, that there was something on it called, oh, I can't say this word. I am so sorry, guys. I'm going to try real hard. Ethyl diamyotrechic acid, or as known as D. E or EDTA. And they were like, oh, that's what's in to preserve the blood and everything like that. But fun fact, it's also found in a Big Mac. Oh. Yeah. So, like, where did uh, Kato and Simpson go earlier that night? McDonald's. <laughs> hmm. 
Interesting. They got bit max. They said it. <laughs> Interestingly enough, they basically were trying to insinuate that, like, they did plant the evidence at the gate and that it wasn't there prior. Because it was collected on July 3rd versus June 13th. And they were like, well, it's it ha- how could it be less corrupted? And basically what they were saying is because of the climate of Brentwood, the area it was, it was actually, like, in a great climate just to exist. Versus, like, other contaminated samples that have been like touched with things one of the key things that the prosecution brought up was the blood splatter on the socks and basically they were saying that the you know that the lapd poured blood over the socks because police nurse who took the blood testified in the preliminary trial that he had taken eight milliliters of blood like the little vials but they only could account for like six and a half milliliters and they were like oh those two milliliters were like used to like frame oj simpson and then basically at the trial the nurse was like uh yeah i I just said eight because that's what i thought it was but like there's a good chance it was six and a half because we don't really pay that close attention we just take enough mm-hmm. blood that we think. Interesting. If you are a patron, we're going to talk about the blood splatter when we talk about a documentary. I'm spoiling it for the patrons right now. but Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited for that. Me too. And then they basically said that like Van Adder was the one who basically did this. And at the end, Johnny Cochran had to have this like chart made up and he called it the big fat lies of Van Adder. So yeah, it was pretty, it was a lot. Every piece of evidence that the, prosecution put up the defense just was like it doesn't it's not real it was contaminated it was it was a cover-up it was cover-up it was a cover-up in fact johnny cochran says that like 17 times in his closing statement now we talk about the most critical piece of evidence that basically fucked everything up for the prosecution Mm -hmm. and the defense was like aha the prosecution had called richard rubin and he basically was an expert in these gloves the the heiress gloves and he came and he like talked about them and these particular aries lights were only sold in bloomingdale's and there were only 300 extra large aries lights in brown sold at bloomingdale's and wouldn't you fucking know when they went and looked at nicole brown simpson's credit card statements they're literally she bought two pairs and the prosecution is like aha mm-hmm. there were photos of him they're literally photos of him wearing it an interesting thing i didn't know but was in the book which i thought was interesting is these everyone was like the gloves are really tight on oj and yes he stopped taking his arthritis medicine so his like knuckles and stuff but these gloves were actually meant to be worn really snug. Mm. They were meant to basically be like a second skin. Men's gloves were typically really bulky and these were meant to be a little bit designed more like women's gloves to be a Mm -hmm. little thinner and a little more dainty and that's why they were called the Aries Lights. And OJ Simpson exclusively wore these gloves from 1990 when Nicole purchased them Mm -hmm. to 1994. Yep. Those were his gloves of choice. He only wore them. Like basically they should have been giving him a deal that they would have immediately regretted later. The prosecution got together and they talked about, like, whether or not they should put the gloves on O.J. Simpson. And they decided that because of the state of the gloves, like, they had been soaked in blood, which I look, I googled it. Gloves, leather gloves soaked in blood can shrink because it's a liquid. They also had been manhandled and mistreated and they, they were a piece of evidence. And because they were a piece of evidence, they'd cut pieces out. So the integrity of the gloves were not the same. Bailey tried to do like a little sneaky thing in the prosecution. I don't know if we talked about this last time. Basically, like he took a plastic bag, like evidence bag, and he put a glove in it and then like put it in a sock and like was like, couldn't Furman have done this? Like, and Marsha Clark was like, 
okay, no. And they were like, well, that's a small, that's an extra, the size was small. Even Ito was like, that's not even the right size glove. And Marsha Clark made like a joke. She's like, oh, those must be Bailey's gloves. Basically in court, on record. Oh, shit. Insinuating that F. Lee Bailey had a small penis. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's funny. (laughs) And he took offense to that and he was like, those are not my gloves. (laughs) So basically, right before the glove evidence, they had been sh- the prosecution, because this is the prosecution brought this up. They had been showing like all of the like horrific autopsy photos for like nine straight days. And then the glove guy comes in and it's kind of like almost humorous to the defense team at this point. Like the day before, they're staring at this gaping neck wound. And then today, this dude is up here talking about gloves. And you know, they adjourn for, or they like go on recess for lunch and the defense team is actually playing with the gloves. Like, cause they're going up and they're looking at it and they're like holding them and looking at them. And like, you know, Bob Shapiro puts it up to his hand and the gloves like barely fit him. But OJ, like they'd been seeing him through the plexiglass for so long that when he would like put his hand up, they would put their hand up and they were like, his hand is big. Like in one of the books I was reading, I don't remember if it was this one or one of the other ones. They were described his hands. Mm-hmm. And this dude was like, OJ Simpson's hands were basically like bigger than my head. Oh, whoa. Like, this dude <laughs> was like, OJ Simpson could have grabbed my head with his hand. <laughs> the defense is like, okay, we can't get him to do it. We have to get the prosecution. So Effley Bailey loved to fucking rattle Chris Darden, just like Johnny Cochran did. And he walked up to this man and leaned into his ear and said, you have the balls of a stud field mouse. If you don't have OJ try them on, I will. What? So tiny balls. You have tiny balls there. Oh my God. I was like, oh my God, Bailey, you cut the quick. Like, Jesus. So Chris Darden is like, fuck, I have big balls. I have big balls. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's basically what it was. He was like, I will. And so he goes against his team and OJ Simpson gets full control of this demonstration. Mind you, the the other reason they didn't want to do this is they knew the gloves were tight. They knew they had been sh- like, like Marsha Clark is like, they're smaller now than they should be. And they have to put fucking latex gloves on this because the fucking gloves themselves are biohazards. They're soaked in blood. Darden, so this is on page 367. It says, Darden walked over to Simpson and said, I'm handing Mr. Simpson the left glove, Rockingham. This was wrong. The left glove came from Bundy and the right from Rockingham. So already just Chris Darden striking the mm. fuck out. Darden asked Simpson to walk towards him and the jury and both Cochran and one of the sheriff's deputies came with the defendant, creating a traffic jam in front of the jury box. As Simpson walked, he began trying to put on the left glove. All the time, Simpson kept his thumb bent outward at a right angle to his wrist. So like, boom. Mm-hmm. Like flexed, yeah. That too made it impossible for the glove to fit properly. OJ grimaced and said more or less to Cochran, but really to the jury, too tight. Your Honor, Darden said in his voice now trembling. Apparently Mr. Simpson seems to be having problem a problem putting the glove on his hand. Johnny Cochran, stifling a smile, proper, er, properly objects to Darden's narrative of the event. Basically... They have the glove guy look at it and Darden sees what's going on. He's like, can you have him straighten his finger? Darden's ass. Can you ask him to straighten his fingers and extend them into the glove as one normally might put the glove on? Ito said yes, and and Cochran burst out again. Your Honor, object to this statement by counsel. 
Like, what the fuck? You're just being like... Then Darden asked if would go on to ask him to, like, grab a marker and, like... <laughs> So fucking dumb of him. So, like, to hold it, O.J. Simpson understood the assignment here. Like, he knew, like, I can't grab this like I would a fucking knife. I'm pretty sure this part's on, like, you can see it on YouTube and stuff. Yeah, it says it was held in his hand the way a baby would hold a marker. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) Oh, God. With his, I guess his, like, thumb was, like, out or something like that. And then Darden was like, can you, uh... simulate stabbing someone and so oj was just like meh meh just you know fake stabbing the air with a marker oh my god and basically this just made darden look like a like an idiot and the only thing that kind of saved him in this but didn't actually save him at all was that darden was like asked richard rubin who was the glove expert to be like do you think these gloves fit OJ? And he said, yes, at one time they fit him. At the end of all of this, at the end of the day, Marsha Clark would say, do you think it's all over now? Oh my God. <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah. Now we get into another interesting part of this case. Mm-hmm. Mark Furman. Yeah. Because the OJ Simpson trial quickly became the Mark Furman trial. If you remember the prosecution, he was a key witness because he found the evidence at Bundy. Or not at Bundy, at Rockingham. Yeah, the glove. Mm-hmm. Right, mind you, he was lead detective for all of like an hour because then Van Adder and Lang came in and took over. Gotcha. The prosecution wanted Furman to talk about finding the glove because then they could bring it into evidence. However, they could have done that through Van Adder. They could have talked about him going and getting it, everything like that. In the preliminary trial, Chris Darden asks Judge Ito to ban the N-word from the court. And it does not go his way. Basically, they're like, no, no, no. And he said it, I quote, it's a dirty, filthy word, Darden said. It's not a word that I allow people to use in my household. And I'm sure Mr. Cochran doesn't. And the reason we don't is because it is an extremely derogatory and degrading word because of its prejudicial and also extremely inflammatory that the use of the word in any situation will invoke some type of emotional response from any African-American within your shot. And then Johnny Cochran jumps up and is like, basically like, oh, you're saying that black people can't handle hearing the N word because they're too emotional and basically like hands him and He also says, my good friend, which we know that Cochran was like, bullshit. When he wins, when Cochran wins this move, he leans over to Darden and says, inward, please. Johnny Cochran (laughs) has huge balls. (laughs) I was like, Johnny Cochran, Jesus. (laughs) So so when the prosecution is done and the defense cross-examines Furman, they do that. And F. Lee Bailey gets up and point blanks asked him, have you ever in the last 10 years used the N-word? And he's like, no. And he asks it several different ways. And at one point, Furman says, not that I can recall. And he goes, oh, so you just said it and you can't recall it. He's like, no, it's the way you ask the question. And I was like, oh, Furman, we're snapping back. <laughs> yeah, he fucker should not have. Fucker should have just owned up to his shit. Because Mark Furman a piece of not shit. only has used the N-word, but he used it 41 times piece in a of shit. span of 12 hours. Piece of shit. Super piece of shit. So basically what ends up happening is, if you remember when we did the recap of the new Casey Anthony thing, mm-hmm. wherever it was on, mm-hmm. I think it was on Peacock? Paramount? Peacock? Paramount, something. Yeah. 
something. We don't know. We watched it one time. We never do it again. She's working for a private investigator by the name of Pat McKenna. And when I'm listening, because I was listening to this book and reading it in person, they're talking about Pat McKenna throughout this case. And I was like, where the fuck do I know Pat Mm -hmm. McKenna from? And I'm texting Tara. And I was like, I I even asked you, like, I don't know who Pat McKenna is. And you're like, I don't know. The name sounds familiar, though. And I Googled him. He's the fucking person that Casey Anthony works for. Like, currently. (sighs) Uh Uh-huh. Yup. And if you watch that, you know he's on how her and OJ met. OJ Simpson and Pat McKenna or in Casey Anthony are friends because they have a person in common, Pat McKenna. I have been for years being like, how the fuck did they find each other? True. Oh, my God. Yeah, true. And literally, if you guys have followed like the Sarah Turney thing, she literally just put out a TikTok yesterday, the other day, yesterday, something Mm -hmm. in real time, Mm -hmm. where she was talking about her dad should join an acquittal club. Literally, moments before Tara saw that, she texted me that. We were talking about it. And then she sent me that. She's like, oh, my God, this is crazy. (laughs) This case, the OG Simpson case has literally rocked our whole world. Yeah, it's definitely it's too too much guys it's too much it's okay it's okay we're getting there (laughs) yeah we're almost we're almost done guys i promise so pat mckenna is the private investigator that effley bailey like brings out and shapiro has his own people but they're not very good and literally he comes up with like every time he sees shapiro he comes up with like bizarro uh like conspiracy theories mckenna is like doing the phone lines one night and this dude named Brian calls and is like, Hey, so there's this chick named Laura Hart McKinney and she's a screenwriter. And she basically has audio recording of Furman using the N word. Right. And they were like, Oh my God, this is the deal. This was such a big deal in this case that literally they asked Ito for like, to recess Shapiro and Bailey fucking went to North Carolina, which is where the tapes were mm-hmm. like, was her home state mm-hmm. where she had like done everything. Where they're at, yeah. Well, cause she lived in like Santa Monica or San, oh. well then why were they over Santa there? Barbara or someplace like that. Something to do with like her home state and like where the tapes were, I think maybe residing. I don't know. Interesting. But basically they go and they have to win this court case to be able to get the tapes. They had read the transcripts and the transcripts were terrible. Johnny Cochran was like, this is terrible. And basically, because Johnny Cochran went in and it was like, I'm swagger. The judge was like, no. And they had to like appeal it. And Bailey had to appeal it because, you know, he understands the men of the South, apparently. Gotcha. Uh, so they get this. Essentially what it is that uh, Laura Hart McKinney was a screenwriter and she was wanting to write a screenplay about or yeah a screenplay about a woman in the police force and she just happened to meet mark Furman. they were both single in their 30s they were like hey friend let's talk they were flirting blah 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 basically Furman is like the trashiest person he basically tells them that he's part of the lapd but also he's part of this like super elite like underground club called ma or mao which is men against women because they did not believe that women should be police officers wow it's terrible like all of the shit he even talks about so at one point in time there could have been a mistrial for this reason alone so margaret peggy york is the wife of judge lance ito she was in fact Furman's superior officer at one point in time which wasn't that big of a deal however he said that she sucked and fucked her way to the top on tape what the fuck so lance ito had to be like i'm just gonna say this like i'm super paraphrasing he was like 
that's fucked up. Like, he should not have talked about my wife. Yeah. And they could have, like, they could have removed him. But neither side wanted to remove him because they had gotten the jury down. The defense had gotten the jury where they wanted it. There was, like, one problem person. And then the defense or the prosecution was like, we can't fucking do this again. If we redo this again, it's going to be a nightmare. Which, I mean, like, if you do it again, you could just, like, go back in and be like, okay, we're going to get the N-word, like, removed because look at the controversy. They played those tapes, not for the jury, but they played the tapes for the public. Everyone in the, con- everyone in the fucking, yeah, everybody else. like, country mm-hmm. slash, yeah, everyone heard it except for yeah. the jurors. The jurors were only allowed, on, so on September 5th of 1995, the, they were only allowed to hear two lines in which Furman used the N-word. He said there are no n-word where i grow up and he said people don't want n-word in their town people don't want mexicans in their town and i feel like ito was like what is the least controversial way he used this word and he found two lines that was super not controversial and that fucking says so much uh yeah he literally talks about in the like in the book he literally fucking talks about like how these like guys had like shot a cop and they like busted into this apartment and they like held this woman at gunpoint saying they were going to blow her head off. And they got these guys and they basically beat the fuck out of them. And like, you know, using the N word up and up and up. And like, basically it was like this whole thing to the point where like, he's bragging about how he broke their faces, how like one dude had to get like 70 stitches on their head that they went back out and like out back and basically washed their hands and face and badges off. And then went out and directed traffic. Like nothing had happened. What the fuck? And that had like an internal investigation of like 300 and something pages. And he was like bragging to her that he had like 4,000 pages worth of internal investigations related to race issues. Because if you remember, I don't know if we actually talked about this, but Mark Furman literally tried to sue the LAPD saying that the LAPD made him racist and that he wanted to go on disability because they made him racist. Fucking read this book. It's oh amazing. Like, you're going to yeah. learn. Please, like, it's crazy. Yeah. This I need shit. to buy that. Good idea. Good idea. <laughs> so then they bring Furman, the defense, they bring def- they bring Furman back in and they ask him, did you say this? They basically were, like, asking him questions and he kept pleading the fifth. And so when they ask him, did you mishandle? Did you, he pled the fifth. So right there, the fucking gift wrap of reasonable doubt was handed to the jury. At the end of all of that crazy shenanigans, Cochran gets up one last time. It's him and Sheck get up and like Sheck goes through all of like the the DNA shit. But Cochran basically talks about how this is the LAPD's Furman, Lang, and Vat Adder basically targeted OJ Simpson. That Furman, um, who obviously didn't like black people, you know, it's very obvious if you ever like I don't recommend listening to them or hearing them. They're terrible. It's just it's gut-wrenchingly gross what Furman did and people were saying like that he only did it because he was playing a character but it was just too it was just too fl- free-flowing Bullshit. yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh Cochran would compare Furman to Adolf Hitler and he would call him a genocidal racist America's worst nightmare and personification of evil what the defense did is they were like hey don't look at the fact that this man slaughtered two people Look at the fact that there's this racist dude involved. And Marsha Clark basically had to get up and be like, we hate him too. But that's not what this is about. And she didn't, she did an okay job, but she didn't do a good enough job. Right, exactly. So with that, the jury goes out to deliberate. And 
it was literally, and at this point in time, like Gil Garcetti is like preparing for like war. Bill Clinton is also like, hey, what are the, like, what do you need security wise? They have cops on horses. They have everything barricaded because if he is found guilty, they think there's going to be another riot like in 92. Mm -hmm. You know, after summations, the closing statements are made, everything like that. All the fucking lawyers take off. OJ goes back to jail. Everyone else leaves. And then they all get called back because there was only literally, it was four hours. They deliberated for four hours. Yeah, it was so, it was so fast. Literally four hours. It was... Obviously, if you've paid attention, he is he was acquitted because in Johnny Cochran's closing statement, he said, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. And the jurors took him literally and mm-hmm. figuratively. And they they basically acquitted him of the murders and the two families that were sitting there had to watch it. Kim Goldman like literally like shrieked <sighs> out crying. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's my terrible. Heart. Oh, yeah. So we done with this episode. <laughs> okay. Jessica's oh, talked God. a long, long time. She is done. <laughs> so, I'm so proud of myself. So proud of you. So proud of you. We do have one more episode. Of OJ stuff. Yes. So there won't be a listeners or maybe is this, I don't even see this a thing. I don't even know like at this point what's going up when. So I'm like, oh shit. This would be listeners episode. Okay. So yes, we, 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 we just skipped listeners this month because yeah. of this massive series. Yeah. But it will be back next. It will be back for October. So don't. Be. Don't worry. Lots of cool stuff. But anyways, with that, we are going to go ahead and wrap it up for today. Thank you guys for listening as always. And again, come hang out with us on social media. And if you have a suggestion for us to do another really deep dive like this, please let us know because I know we both have really enjoyed like investing this much. (laughs) We have. I I have done nothing else but talk about OG Mm -hmm. Simpson. I think people mm-hmm. in my life are annoyed with me because I'll be like, random fact, OJ Simpson, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, yup, same. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up and we'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Toodles. Toodles.